Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. We're seven months, can you believe it, into the health response in Victoria and just a couple of weeks away from the state budget being handed down and inevitably we're starting to see issues other than the pandemic being raised and one of those issues is the overdue decision around a proposed 60,000 hectare uh, national park for Victoria's Central West. Uh, the recommendation to establish a new park was put to the state government back in June last year by one of its own agencies and the Victoria National Parks Association is reminding us about this um, and they're voicing concern really that the delay is depriving Victorians of much needed new parkland. They've even surveyed um, over a thousand people and found uh, an increased support for new parklands close to the city and it's uh, really great to have you with us. Matt Ruckel, um, Exec Director of VMPA and uh, it's been a while since we had you on Triple R. Good morning. Morning. And so tell us more about the proposed area of National Park 2 in the central west of the state. So the central west proposal um, is really sort of four patches of bush. Um, So it's the place that people would be familiar with, probably the Wombat Forest around between Woodend and Dalesford, the Wellsford Forest, which is up adjacent to Bendigo, uh, Mount Cole, which is west of Ballarat, and the Pyrenees Ranges, um, which is a bit north of that, up around Avoca, and then a, a range of other smaller uh, sort of public land areas scattered in that region. Um, there was a, a sort of a, a long-running community campaign that's been going for, or at least a decade, really, um, to better protect these areas. Both there's still many of them are still open to logging. Um, there's also quite a significant mining interest. Um, so there has been a, a Victorian Environment Assessment Council process, which is about a four-year process of um, community consultation, expert reports, uh, looking at what best value that land should be used for in terms of the public. Um, and essentially, they're recommending a 60,000 addition of a 60,000 hectare um, to the sort of national park and conservation estate. That includes, and in addition to that, some large areas of regional park. Um, so you'd end up with, you know, a big national park at uh, sort of Wombat Lurdadurg, um, a significant national park at Mount Cole. Uh, Mount Cole's particularly interesting because it's pretty much the only place in the West that's still subject to clear logging, um, and then a, a number of other parks. And the interesting thing about those is they're very actually close to Melbourne, and if you look at Melbourne, there isn't actually that many national parks within striking distance. There's places like the Dandenongs and the Yarra Ranges, but a lot, as people would know, a lot of the Yarra Ranges is closed water catchment, so not really that accessible. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you later about some recommendations for for, um, local national parks because um, I couldn't think of that many outside of the the current ring of steel. Um, Are there there any in the city? I I suppose there's Royal Park, but I mean, that's not a national park, but are there any that people should be reminded of right now if they are having a bit of a hankering for the bush? Uh, Well, there is the the 25k limit, I suppose. Um, uh, What we found with the polling was that, you know, 
as we as a lot of people would expect, there has been an increase in interest in both visiting natural areas right across the state, but also visiting bushlands and parks in your local area. Um, so in Victoria, the the sort of traditional natural areas in the metro places, um, you know, things like the Anyong Ranges are a traditional national park, but there's also uh, things like Merry Creek Corridors, um, some quite good uh, large parks out in the west, um, and there are proposals for new urban parks as well, but they're a sort of a different proposition. Um, while they do protect nature, they're not really about that larger uh, conservation area that's both uh, protecting things for the future, like wildlife and natural systems, but also um, managing visitor access in an appropriate way. And so what does it, um, creating a national park entail? Because, I, I mean, you, you sort of set out a couple of areas which I think aren't aren't exactly linked. Um, they're, they're sort of separate potential um, national park areas. What, what does it, in, what, what does it, what happens when it becomes a national park? So there's a couple of steps. So usually there is one of these sort of Victorian Environmental Assessment Council recommendations, um, not always, but uh, mostly historically. Um, that's then tabled in Parliament. The government's got six months to respond to the the recommendations in Parliament. This, in this case, this hasn't happened, um, and possibly understandably due to COVID or bushfires, so we're worried that it'll just fall to the bottom of the list. Um, but then, so it requires a government decision at the end of the day, and then legislation. And so there is a fairly complicated tenure system. So for national parks, it's legislation. Um, for uh, things like nature conservation reserves, it's a sort of a gazettal process uh, where they officially change the tenure. And what the change in tenure does is it's pretty much the only way to protect forests from extractive uses. So it uh, essentially reduces the capacity for mining um, or the progression from exploration licences to um, exploitation or actual mining in those areas. Uh, it also removes the sort of forestry applications, so some things like regional parks allow for firewood collection. Um, and so it puts that in place via the tenure, um, and then it makes parks the manager, uh, so they do a couple of things. There's regulations that then manage behaviour, um, uh, so where there's restrictions on animals or uh, firearms, those regulations come into play. Um, and if it's a national park or a state park, it has to have a management plan uh, which informs where you put uh, things like your camping areas and your picnic areas and that sort of thing. And so there's a, a thoughtful process of trying to determine which place, bits of it need to be highly protected, which bits are better used for recreational access. Um, and then... Ideally, a, a sort of ongoing management program controlling threats, uh, but also managing impacts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, it sounds like there's a lot, a lot in it. So um, I guess it's understandable if the state government, you know, they've got a, had a bit on in recent months. Um, why are you raising now this idea of like, I mean, it is six months overdue, I think, the decision around the, the National Park proposal for or recommendation for the central west of the state. Um, what, why raise it now? Well, I suppose um, the polling was twofold, I suppose. One, to confirm what a lot of people already thought, that there is, uh, COVID has made people more interested in 
natural areas. Um, I suppose we wanted to remind the state government that there's still unfinished business uh, in the central west. Um, we also wanted to test, uh, you know, did COVID change that priority? So what we found in the poll was, and this is consistent with lots of other polls, there's, you know, widespread support for new national parks. Uh, so roughly around 80% of Melbourne support Central West uh, parks, a lot of those strongly support, um, usually make some vote, more likely to vote for a political party, but also COVID didn't have a great deal of impact uh, on that result. While there was a slight reduction when asked explicitly, um, you know, does the COVID reduce your support? Um, 77 people still said they supported having new national parks. So it was a really highlighting that. Um, we're worried that I suppose the agenda and, and to a point there's challenges with the economy. Um, parks are good for people. Uh, they can also be really good for tourism and regional jobs um, and we want that to be part of the mix in terms of when we're moving to recovery phase. Yeah, we're speaking with Matt Ruckel. He's the Exec Director of the Victorian National Parks Association. Around some polling they've done around attitudes towards um, national parks. Um, they've they've polled um, over a 1,000 people in and around Melbourne and, and also um, raising, um, reminding the state government that there is an overdue decision around a proposed um, change of use for about 60,000 hectares of, of land in Victoria where a new national park um, network could be established and so the few things going on and I want I mean generally speaking you know there is support for the establishment of new parks um, has the pandemic did you find changed views on on um, I suppose on our attitudes towards nature Matt did you sort of get a sense that um, of the the hundreds of people that were were polled that that we are hankering for more connection <laughs> Yes, well, it was pretty clear. Um, so there was a sort of set of questions about, you know, value, do you value nature across Victoria more with COVID? Um, are you interested in visiting national parks? Um, so there was about a 50% increase in interest, a 50% plus anyway, in interest in visiting uh, natural areas and uh, national parks and conservation areas across the state. And a similar sort of figure, about 46% of visiting bushland and parks in your local area. Though the interesting one in uh, the local one was there was quite a large cohort of people, uh, around 20%, uh, who actually said COVID had made them less likely to visit their parks. The survey didn't really explain why uh, local parks, that is. Um, maybe maybe they're sick of them. <laughs> Just joking. Which sort of makes sense, I suppose. It didn't really tell you why, but it's, I suppose it could be crowded or people are worried about um, certain people and that sort of thing, which is fair enough. Uh, but the trend was, yes, definitely more support um, there. And also when we explicitly asked, you know, did COVID change your view on whether you support national parks or not, that, that figure held up. Um, so 77% of Melbournians supported the Andrews government creating new national parks. And interestingly, also, it's sort of almost bipartisan in a way. It's sort of 80 to 6% of ALP voters and 60% of coalition voters also support parks. And so, I mean, uh, just just finally, um, um, you know, the, 
that there is acceptance, it, it seems, that, that we could turn some land, uh, mixed-use land, into national parks. But um, are, you, are you thinking, even if the, the state government made a decision tomorrow, that people would have access to these areas for the summer or really that process that you outlined earlier is protracted and it's going to be some time before, you know, a new national park for Melbourne or, you know, for Victoria would be open to visitors in the way that you described? Yes, that's right. So, well, the areas are still open to visitors, but it still takes a couple of years to pass the legislation, put in place the plans. Um, you'd also like to see some investment in improved visitor facilities, you know, proper signage and so on. So all that takes a little bit of time. Um, I suppose it, it'll be interesting to see um, once we get out of lockdown situations, um, we found after the first lockdown, um, lots of parks that sometimes were less used parks, certainly the ones that are well known, like the Dandenongs, were completely overcrowded. Um, you know, they had to restrict certain areas just because of the large numbers of people trying to get out. Um, and I think this ongoing issue of parks within striking distance of Melbourne, you know, 90 minutes drive, um, up to two hours drive. Um, we really need some more of those uh, facilities, and you never know. COVID lockdown may actually may actually sort of be a, a more long term shift in terms of people's attitudes to wanting to go back to get back to nature. I guess we'll find out. And um, I suppose just quickly, any um, hint of a decision coming out of state government? I suppose a lot of people are looking for some decisions out of state government at the moment, but on this one. No, nothing so far. Well, you know, essentially it's been the response, you know, bushfires and COVID have distracted us and, um, yep. you know, so we're hopeful uh, and we'll keep reminding the government that their decisions are overdue and um, that it's a good decision to make. Yeah, sure. I'm sure you will. Um, thanks, Matt. Um, uh, great having you on Triple R. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Matt Rookle there. He's um, Exec Director of the Victorian National Parks Association, advocating for more national parks in, in Victoria and raising awareness that um, there is a decision pending around 60,000 hectares that could become national parks in Victoria's central west. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And unfortunately, this year's COVID-19 shutdowns have been accompanied by a shadow pandemic of domestic and family violence with specialist support services experiencing a surge in demand. And we're just starting to understand this and the toll that our ongoing stay-at-home orders are having on frontline workers in this sector. And new research has just been released into the wellbeing toll on Victoria's practitioners. Dr Naomi Fitzner is Research Fellow at the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre and uh, she joins us now. It's really great to have you um, on Triple R, Naomi. Welcome. And I think, um, uh, I mean, we hear about the shadow pandemic. I wonder if we can start there and and tell us what that looks like for, for Victoria before we actually start to kind of delve into the wellbeing issues of our frontline workers. Sure, and thanks for having me. So, you know, prior to the pandemic, we actually had research from the United Nations that unfortunately showed that home is actually 
most dangerous place for women and children worldwide. So with governments across the globe issuing stay-at-home orders, there was increasing concern about the heightened risk to the safety of women and children. And um, back in the initial Stage 3 restrictions in Victoria in April and May, we surveyed practitioners and what our research showed was there's unfortunately been an increase in the prevalence the severity and the complexity of family violence since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdowns in Victoria. And you followed that study up with another one. Tell us about this recent um, investigation you've done into the the well-being of of the support workers um, in at this period of time. So you've gone back and had a look at, I understand, July to August 2020 and surveyed around um, 113 practitioners in the state. Yeah, so from our first research, while the practitioners, you know, reported an increase in family violence, they also talked to us about how responding to this increased demand was having a significant toll on their well-being. So during these latest stage three and stage four restrictions, we wanted to check in with practitioners and see how responding to family violence during the pandemic was impacting in their well-being. And what we unsurprisingly found was like all Victorians, family violence practitioners are experiencing general stress and anxiety related to the pandemic, but they have this additional burden of having to talk about highly emotional and traumatic situations from their living rooms and unfortunately sometimes from their bedrooms. And for these practitioners, working from the home has meant that they've had to bring their family violence work into their homes. And they talked to us about how homes used to be their safe space, but now that the family violence work has tainted their homes and they described it like they're being like, hum of family violence in their rooms. Well, that's a really um, distressing image there. I mean, what... I mean, what's your sense about how they're they're coping with that? They're reporting to you that that um, is a situation they're facing. And I actually know people in this situation and um, they've got, you know, up days and, and, and down days like everybody, mm. I guess. But what's your sense of, of the toll that that might have ongoing? So what our research has really revealed is that, you know, the working from home requirements have actually had quite a detrimental impact on the wellbeing of practitioners responding to family violence. And I know we had some stories from different practitioners and one described it to me like they had had concrete heaped on their shoulders because they're dealing with really high level risk at the moment and they're dealing with escalated cases of violence. And I think what the key here is that family violence practitioners usually work on site and while they might have abuse individual caseloads, they work as a support team and their colleagues provide that really essential peer support and debriefing that's so crucial to their well-being. And what we've seen with the working from home clients is now they've had to transition to working alone in their homes and they told us that they felt isolated and lonely and they were missing that debriefing from their colleagues that's so critical to their self-care practice. So I guess our concern going forward is that, you know, the family violence practitioners are on our front lines of the shadow pandemic in Victoria and we need to prioritise their wellbeing because they are providing a really crucial service to Victoria during a time of increased family violence and high demand on the sector. Yeah, and there's no doubt about that. And I suppose we've seen, you know, you know many people and, and, and businesses and, and government agencies and the like have to kind of do triple somersault back 
backflips or whatever to catch up with the remote working situation and get all the infrastructure mm. in place. And I understand that this has happened in the servicing um, and the ability to, to provide fe- flexible services for those people um, experiencing violence in their own homes and lives at the moment. What support could be given or more more um, support could be given to, to workers that might be still working for some months based at their own homes. Are there sort of triple backflips we can do there to to provide the kind of networking and support that they found in an office situation in their own homes? Sure. I think, you know, as with anything, resourcing is really the key here. There's no blueprint for the domestic and family violence sector on how to work remotely and work from home because they haven't traditionally had to do this. But we did hear some really great initiatives that agencies have been piloting during this time. So one um, agency we spoke with, they had created sort of a buddy system so that practitioners were partnered with a colleague and they just check in on each other every day because the importance there is, you know, while they've got a check in about how they're managing their cases and their clients, they also just need to check in and see how that person is tracking just generally what's happening in their lives because the family violence sector is also a very female-dominated sector. Um, Around 80% are women. So we know that they also told us about how they're juggling increased caring demands during this time and that there's other people in their homes that they also need to be mindful of in terms of bringing their family violence work home with them. Yeah, um, I, I just also- can't imagine that. I mean, I know, you know, again, I've heard, I read in your study that people are, mm. you know, using bedrooms in their own home to do this kind of work. And I mean, is it likely that there there could become, you know, um, guidelines could be developed around how to work safely and create a safe space in your safe space to be able to do your work? I mean, this is stuff we just didn't think would ever need to be done, isn't it? Yeah, and actually we um, partnered with the Peak Body Domestic Violence Victoria on this latest research and we're working with them to develop some practice guidance, exactly as you said, because there is no blueprint. So we want to work out how can we translate what these practitioners' experiences and their insight have told us into how we can provide some guidance about how to set up working from home effectively and how to ensure or minimise that it has a detrimental impact on your well-being. Yeah, and so... I think the other... No, continue. Go ahead. No, we get, we're getting a pause on the line, so apologies. Keep going. The other key thing I think that came out of our research is, you know, bringing family violence work into homes has had a huge impact on practitioners, but it's also had an impact on the other people that they've been sharing homes with during the lockdown, whether that's flatmates, whether that's partners, but also children. So a lot of practitioners told us, you know, despite their best efforts, people in their homes, particularly young children, would inevitably overhear situations and they're hearing situations that are involving trauma and abuse. So we also need to think not only about how do we support the practitioners to maintain their wellbeing, but how do we support other members sharing households during the lockdown who might be inadvertently exposed to trauma during this time. Uh, Dr. Naomi um, Fitzner is with us and she's a research fellow at the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre and we're speaking about some recent, um, a recent study they've done looking in, at the wellbeing uh, toll on Melbourne practitioners or Victorian practitioners responding to family violence um, in this period um, in the COVID-19 shutdown um, and if, uh, the stage three and also the stage four shutdowns that we've been experiencing and uh, one thing, I mean 
uh, that I learned from your study is that um, despite rising demand for the services, uh, family and, and domestic violence services, uh, there has been some some um, positives come out of this period with the the work the flexibility um, by workers um, being at home on some of the online service provision that has been increased has allowed delivery of more services to more people can you sort of talk to some of the the kind of surprise benefits I suppose that have come out of this period as well sure I think you know there's definitely some positives and we've seen um domestic and family violence services across Australia have rapidly transitioned to remote service delivery and they've all moved to web and message and phone-based service delivery. And what they've told us is that's really increased their reach, not only in terms of, you know, people living in regional and rural communities getting more readily access to services, but also, you know, where someone previously might have to have arranged childcare so that they could go and then see a family violence specialist practitioner and get advice, they can now more easily juggle their other commitments and they don't have to, you know, take a day off work or pay for children to be in care so that they can get some advice or counselling about their situation. So I think that's been a really big positive. And the other thing we've seen is that practitioners too have said that they've had greater access to professional development and training during this period because the training offerings have largely transitioned online. So it's great that they've been able to continue to upskill and develop their capabilities in responding to family violence in this environment. And, and I guess some, some of the guidance notes that are being developed at the moment might go to a finding that really stood out to me and that's that um, private, privacy and confidentiality and, mm-hmm. and safety concerns about victim and survivors um, accessing support services from homes where the perpetrators may still be residing have found challenges there. Um, is, that, is that something that is getting attention? I mean, it's got everyone's attention and it's one of the biggest challenges with these home confinement periods is the practitioners all told us there's just no guarantee of privacy or confidentiality. So in the situations where um, a person who's experiencing violence might actually decide that they have an opportunity to make a call and seek advice or support, practitioners were telling us that they often had a sense that the abuser was standing next to them and listening into their phone calls. And we also found that in our earlier research in June, we found that um, practitioners told us there'd been increased monitoring of phone calls, increased monitoring of online activities. But what we have seen is that agencies that have been able to respond to these challenges. So a lot of agencies are using like encrypted call links so that you don't have to download it app onto your device so then it's not traceable but they've also developed like physical signals and code words so that people who are experiencing violence and need help can signal to agencies and can get their support without alerting the perpetrator who may be in the home with them and that's a really key challenge during these periods of home confinement that we've been facing. And so you've um, done several studies now through 2020 uh, Naomi what comes next for your research over at the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. Well, as I said, we're working with the peak bodies to try and translate these latest findings into some practice guidance about how you can effectively and safely work 
remotely when you have to respond to family violence. But obviously we are going to continue monitoring the ongoing impact on family violence levels. Everyone has expressed concern to us that unfortunately we're probably likely to see a further increase in family violence reporting as restrictions ease and as more women and children feel like they're able to safely seek support at this time. And I'd say the other key thing that we're really focusing on is how we can provide safe housing options for women and children who need to escape family violence during this period. Prior to COVID-19, we already had a shortage in safe housing options for women and children in Australia, and that's really being felt during this time. So we really need to work out a way where women don't have to choose between their personal safety and housing stability. So that's sort of the key obstacle I think we're going to be looking at. All the best with your work and thanks so much for being on Triple R this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Naomi Fitzner there. She's Research Fellow at the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. Speaking about the research that they've done just over the past couple of months, looking at the well-being of uh, Victorian practitioners responding to family violence in this period. And um, if you or someone you know needs support, you can call the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service, and that's 1-800-RESPECT. Or if you want to head online, it's one 800 respect .org.au Triple R And uh, what better place really to talk about community than on community radio and Triple R I know has been um, really vital to a lot of people over the past few months and um, and really for many decades as well. And But this lockdown period, I think, is a fascinating time to have a look at connection and community connection. And um, federal MP and author Andrew Lee has followed up his sort of study of social connection. Um, he released a, a book a decade ago um, looking at disconnection and this one called Reconnected, a community builder's handbook is co-authored with Nick, Nick Terrell and in it they tell the story of change in the way that we do community in Australia and it's really great to have Andrew joining us on the line. Thanks for, thanks for being there. Real pleasure, Carla. Thanks for having me along. And so the pandemic has made many of us sort of hyper aware of who is in our day-to-day lives. And your book a decade ago found that um, Australians were starting to disconnect from each other. In this new book that you've um, co-written, did you find that this is still the case, that we are somewhat disconnected compared to what we were a couple of decades ago? Sadly, yes. Uh, disconnected was all about the problem. Reconnected is about the solution. But we figured that we can't uh, uh, do a book talking about the problems in community life without looking at how it's, uh, how it's fared. Uh, and pretty uniformly, the indicators are negative. Uh, Australians have half as many close friends as in the mid-1980s. We know half as many neighbours as we did when the TV show Neighbours first hit the airwaves in 1985. Uh, we're two-thirds less likely to attend church compared to the 1950s. Two-thirds less likely likely be a union member compared to the early 1980s. Uh, we've seen a cratering in the number of Australian community associations uh, and a commensurate collapse in the share of Australians who are members of community organisations or political parties uh, or any sort of uh, mass member organisations. Uh, so the starting point is that uh, community life in Australia is, is not in a good way uh, and then uh, we set about looking at some of those who are bucking the trend. Uh, uh, places like community radio where there is a, a really strong vibe that's, uh, that's made maintaining civic connectedness. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at yeah the 1950s and 1980s, that's where the data is coming from. And so we're not joiners anymore. Um, but what are we then? Like if we're not, not joining, what are we actually doing with our time? Did, did you get a sense of that? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're spending more time commuting. Uh, that time is more likely to be spent solo commuting uh, in a car, a uh, little metal, metal box on our own. Uh, we're also more likely to be using devices, uh, overall device use. If you look at TV, gaming, smartphones, tablets is up considerably. Uh, and if you look at the, uh, the way in which we organise our leisure, we're more likely to be doing individual sports like going to the gym uh, than team sports like playing cricket. So there's been this real change in the uh, the composition of our sporting activities uh, away from things like uh, AFL and rugby league, uh, ironically, given we've just had grand final weekend, uh, and towards uh, solo pursuits. Uh, we've become less of a nation of we and more of a nation of me. Yeah, well, I did um, note that you had a chart in the book, even having a look at some of the language around that in our um, in novels and other books that um, the word me and um, we are disproportionate compared to what they used to be. I'm so chuffed you picked up on that one. That is my favourite graph in the book, uh, where we uh, copy an exercise that uh, Robert Putnam and Shailen Garrett have done for their new book, The Upswing, uh, and look through uh, Google Books, which, uh, which have been scanning huge numbers of books about Australia, uh, and then we, uh, we look at the frequency of the word we and me. Uh, we find that uh, there is uh, an increasing tendency of Australian books to use the word we and uh, a decreasing tendency to use the word me. Uh, and that's, again... Uh, reflective of, of a culture which has become more individualistic and less communitarian. Now, of course, the answer isn't turning the clock back to the 1950s, which was a much more homophobic, sexist, racist time than today. Now, it's about finding new solutions to build community in a more enlightened age. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, looking at some of the institutions that people aren't joining so much anymore, sports clubs and church groups and things like that. I mean, we've also had, you know, royal commissions into um, some of the abuses that happened within some of those institutions. Is there something there, a sense that we have been betrayed um, by some of these institutions or really is it more this trend towards individualistic kind of lives that we're living now? Yeah, it's interesting. If you look at uh, different organisations, they've all got their own uh, bespoke story. So political parties talk about you know, what's going wrong in politics and candidate selection. And uh, religious organisations talk about the, uh, the scandals that have, uh, have beset them. Uh, those have had an impact, but actually the overall picture in the data is that everyone is trending downwards. You know, whether you're scouts, guides, rotary lions, whether you're a small-scale community group or a large civic organisation, you seem to be shedding members. Uh, but then, you know, there's, there's some that are, uh, that are bucking the trend. Uh, we love the way in which uh, Hunter Intrepid Landcare, for example, encourages members to go on kayaking uh, water clean-up events. And so you get to get fit and clean up your neighbourhood at the same time. Uh, there's an organisation in Britain called The Good Gym, which uh, signs people up to go and go for a run each Saturday morning to visit a lonely older person. Obviously, this is a, a non, non-COVID activity, uh, but uh, when it works, it sees someone get out of bed on a Saturday morning, uh, put on their sneakers, go for a run, uh, you have a cup of tea with the uh, person who's feeling isolated, and then run home again. So you're serving two purposes, and Nick Terrell and I call this double-plus good social capital in, in honour of 
of George Orwell. <laughs> of course you did. And I wonder, um, with regards to an Australian example of that, you write about um, a trial of something called Meal Mates Program. And so when meals get delivered to someone who's ordered those at home, the person will, will stay and have a meal with them, which is seeing people more likely to open their door, more likely to get dressed, more likely to well, turn into a host. Exactly, and this is an initiative of Susie Pauley on the Northern Beaches. Uh, again, something which uh, which sits outside the COVID environment, but hopefully we'll be getting back to it soon. Uh, sure, surely where you that, are, uh, you're allowed to do things like this, are you, or not? I mean, this is true. Canberra is, uh, is largely back to normal, but uh, I, and I hope many of these uh, organisations will be able to go back to some of the uh, less socially distanced activities that have been really good for community building. Uh, but Susie noticed that uh, when the volunteer didn't just drop off the meal at the front door, but actually stayed to share it with the person who was, uh, was getting meals on wheels, uh, then the, the, the client ate more. Uh, they, uh, they were more likely to, uh, to, to get ready, as you say, more likely to get dressed. Uh, and it reminds us that uh, uh, society is so fundamental to who we are that uh, our notion of a good life uh, is tied up in uh, in community. People don't stand around at funerals talking about uh, the honours and awards that the deceased received. They talk about their friends, what they were like as a mate, uh, how they treated those who were, uh, were, were around them, uh, the good times that other people shared with them. Uh, so we need to remind ourselves that uh, if they're the stuff of a uh, funeral eulogy, they're probably also the stuff that's really important in life and that we need to reinvigorate. Yeah, I actually really like the way you put that is um, our friendships aren't resume virtues, they're eulogy virtues. Um, I'm speaking with Andrew Lee, Federal MP um, and author, co-author of a book called Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. And uh, he's following up a a sort of a a book study that he uh, released a decade ago that had a look at really how Australia has become disconnected. And this one's looking at some of the solutions to that. And so let's have a look at solutions. I mean, what when it comes to friendships, uh, Andrew, you mentioned earlier that we have half as many as we used to. We know half the people in our neighbourhoods that we used to. Um, I suppose there's potential that that might be shifting, particularly in the neighbourhood sense at the moment, and especially in Melbourne where we've been confined to our, our local neighbourhoods. But where where is friendship? Can you diagnose it for us um, in Australia in, in 2020? It's, uh, it's been on the wane, but there's some organisations that are, are looking at innovative ways of connecting. So there's an organisation that's set up a thing called Friendline, uh, kind of bundled on Lifeline, but it's not crisis support. Uh, it's really just for people who are feeling lonely and isolated. Uh, and uh, that allows people to phone up and, and talk with a, a stranger about how things are going on. Uh, and the Friendline counsellors are encouraged to share some of their own stories uh, because that's what makes a good conversation. It's not just one person uh, downloading. It's also uh, shared experiences. Uh, there's uh, an organisation in Western Australia called Befriend, uh, set up by a guy called Nick Maisie. Uh, and Befriend is uh, uh, an, an organisation that aims to plug people into social networks. So they organise barbecues and movie nights and get-togethers down the river. Uh, and the idea is that uh, slowly people are able to build up a network of friends. And Befriend sort of f- plays the same kind of role that I guess church social groups might have played or 
or uh, trade unions in the workplace might have played. Uh, but in the absence of many of those formal organisations, Nick set up Befriend in order to, uh, to, to fill the void. And so, I mean, being, a, a, you know, joining organisations such as the ones you just said, um, perhaps is why people felt they had more connections in the past? Or is there something changing? Is there something else changing in our society? I mean, we haven't talked about those, you know, commas friends that we have on, on social media. And I mean, certainly people feel very close, actually, to the people that they're connected to on social media in many instances. But are we losing friends or not developing friendships at a young age? Do you know that from the studies that have been done? Is it something in youth that we don't carry people forward or we move around more than we used to? There's good surveys in the United States of the number of friends that school children have. We couldn't find anything in Australia. Uh, what we do know is there's a regular survey of Australian school students that asks students if they're very stressed. And uh, uh, if you go back to 2005, there's 33% say they're very stressed. And the most recent survey was 49% say they're very stressed. Uh, so in the age of the smartphone, we have seen a decline in youth mental health. And, and tragically, that also flows through to an increased suicide rate. Uh, so we, we know that there, is, there are problems that are starting at a younger age. Uh, we also know that, uh, that Australians, as they drop out of organisations, leave those organisations as less useful to others. Uh, think about Rotary as a classic example. You know, people joined Rotary in a small country town because everyone else was part of Rotary and it was how you plugged into the, the business uh, community in that town. Uh, but once uh, a critical mass of people drop out, there's kind of no point joining in. Uh, so organisations can go into this kind of a death spiral and you see that uh, particularly in, in regional areas going on. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's terrific people building new organisations. You know, we look at uh, uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, people who are setting up new churches, uh, this idea of church planting. Uh, and there's a guy called uh, Pete Greenwood, whose sto- story we tell, who started Inner West Church in the Melbourne suburb of Kensington. Uh, and he describes church planting as being the, uh, the church's research and development division. Uh, you see it in, in other denominations as, as well. There's been uh, really incre- interesting increases in uh, uh, Muslim conversation groups. Uh, there's been uh, important work going on in, in other denominations and indeed uh, in the, uh, the Atheist Sunday Assembly movement. Uh, so all around Australia, there's these social entrepreneurs that are growing civic life and we want to learn their lessons. Yeah, and it does seem very much that individuals can make a difference here. I mean, you tell a, a story about a guy that used to walk his dog in a dog park and then didn't turn up for a few days and someone got curious and then used an app called Gather My Crew to get people to support him once they realised that he was didn't really have much social connection and had a broken ankle at home. Can you sort of tell that story? But I, I, I guess if someone didn't notice, and I, I assume that happens in other instances, then someone can become quite isolated very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, it's said that not having any friends can be as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, and uh, having friends is uh, not only protective of health, but also makes life better living. Uh, it was Liz Migliori who told us the, uh, the lovely story of the uh, man who'd uh, met friends at a dog walking park and uh, all they knew about him was that he had a lemon tree outside his house and he'd sometimes bring lemons along. And then when he didn't turn up for a couple of days, uh, the dog walkers got together and said they'd, uh, they'd check in on him 
and they finally found a house with a, a couple of lemon trees out the front, uh, knocked on the door, and the poor bloke had broken his leg. And then they used this terrific app called Gather My Crew, uh, which allows people who want to help to set out a schedule of the tasks that need to be done. Uh, and they very quickly filled the schedule. They had, uh, by, the, by the end of his ailment, they had almost 30 people uh, helping walk his dogs, helping him getting, me- getting meals, uh, che- mowing the lawn, just checking in on him. Uh, and that, uh, that Gather My Crew app has been used uh, by people who've suffered a recent bereavement, who are going, are going through chemotherapy. Uh, it's uh, a great way of using technology to help connect people, uh, something that Nick Terrell and I dub cyber connecting, uh, not allowing the devices to pull us away from one another, but encouraging them to, uh, to make us closer knit as a community. Yeah, and we saw that also through the pandemic, that the kindness pandemic, and if people haven't come across that, maybe describe it to people. But uh, again, it, it, it makes me realise that individuals can make a huge difference here uh, in, in really changing the lives of people if they um, use technology or use, use their hearts really to guide them on what might be needed by others. Absolutely. Look, if, if Australia is ever put in the dock and uh, accused as a nation of being uh, uh, cold-hearted... I'm sure uh, we, we have been, up. haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yes, yes. I remember before the United Nations and someone saying you're a, you're a cold-hearted nation who, who aren't joining, uh, we need to roll out Catherine Barrett in defence. Uh, Catherine set up the Kindness Pandemic Facebook page, which uh, at its peak uh, had uh, half a million uh, users. Uh, and it was an, an antidote to those TV stories we were seeing of people fighting over the last last roll of toilet paper in the supermarket. Catherine instead was showcasing the lovely stories of uh, people who were delivering a coffee each morning to their neighbour who was trying to homeschool a couple of kids. Uh, the stories of people who were uh, filling the street, uh, street corner uh, book li- lending libraries uh, with toilet paper instead. Uh, the story of the guy who stepped in and paid the grocery bill of the, the stranger in front of him uh, when she'd forgotten her credit card. Uh, so there's all these delightful stories and then Catherine Catherine also used the Kindness Pandemic page to mobilise people to assist. So, for example, to step in and uh, do uh, nurse, uh, classes for expectant mums via Zoom uh, where their antenatal classes had been cancelled uh, and encourage people to, to do more. The challenge is going to be to keep that going. Now, my fear is that the longer the lockdown continues, uh, the greater the sense of uh, damage to our community could be. Yeah, and I also wonder about how widespread these kinds of initiatives are because I've noted, you know, the really beautiful stories that have come out um, during the pandemic and in, on news sites and the like, and they really do get a lot of, you know, they make, make you feel hopeful and we've, we've needed hope in Melbourne um, as well as hard work. And But, I mean, how widespread are they and can they sort of fill the gap left by some of the more formal institutions that people gravitated towards when Australia was a much um, less populous place and I suppose communities felt smaller even if they weren't? I think we need to grow new organisations and, and my hope is that some of those uh, organisations that uh, we've profiled as being modest initiatives now will be major initiatives in the future. Uh, we talk about the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience started by Jack Manning Bancroft uh, and the benefits that that brings uh, not simply to the uh, young Indigenous people who are being mentored but to the mentors themselves uh, in some cases people who uh, have never had a meaningful relationship with an Indigenous Australian before 
Uh, in South Australia, we profile Puddle Jumpers, uh, a great organisation uh, looking to help disadvantaged youth that has uh, a really thoughtful way of bringing new volunteers in and, and is therefore growing very rapidly. Uh, Astrid Jorgensen turned her pub choir initiative into couch choir when uh, the pandemic hit and, uh, and used technology to show uh, how you're able to, uh, to, to uh, sing together uh, in a way that brings a tear to the eye when you watch these videos posted on YouTube. Uh, so there's, there's great social entrepreneurs around. I think there's a lot of opportunities for uh, generous philanthropists to reach out and support them, uh, and particularly to support those that are, are working in marginalised communities. Uh, Nick Terrell and I have this notion of Sutton's Law of Social Capital, named after Willie Sutton, who, when he was asked why he robbed banks, said, oh, that's that's, that's where the money is. Uh, so we say <laughs> Sutton's Law of Social Capital is that if you want to build social capital, you have to start with a need is greatest, uh, and that's typically in disadvantaged communities. Yeah, and, and you mentioned their philanthropist and and donating is something that a lot of people get great pleasure out of. And of course, not everybody has spare cash that they can donate in or invest into something. But we recently, uh, in August, ran our annual Radiothon campaign here at Triple R, and we found a huge number of people donating this year, which was you know really welcomed. I think people sense the need. But I mean, I think there's also an exchange that happens there. Can you talk about how? people are starting to cotton on to the fact that people don't always just donate money because of what the money can do, but actually that real investment of themselves in in the cause that they've committed to? Yes, uh, you need to recognise that uh, the, the best giving uh, also comes with providing your own skills too. Economists talk about comparative advantage. What is the thing that you do comparatively better than other people? Uh, and if you're an accountant, then it probably means that uh, the best thing you can do for a charity uh, is not to go along and paint a fence on a Saturday morning, but maybe to help out with uh, doing their books and uh, allow them to take a little bit of a bit more time focusing on, on what they do best. Uh, so we've, we've seen a growth in, in givers who are uh, very mindful and particularly in the, in the workplace giving space, trying to target that where it'll have most impact. Uh, we've also seen a movement uh, to what's called effective altruism, uh, where donors try and assess what is the impact on recipients of a particular program. What would the world have looked like if this, if this, this philanthropic dollar wasn't given? Uh, and they're, uh, they're increasingly uh, pushing resources towards those programs that have been rigorously evaluated, uh, which I think is a great move for the sector. Yeah, for sure. And just finally, um, volunteering is something close to my heart. I'm a volunteer broadcaster, and I think when we weren't, we didn't know early on, like way back in March, whether you know organisations like Triple R would be able to keep broadcasting. Such was the unknown of the COVID virus, and of course, we've been able to stay here and do this thing that we love. But a lot of people haven't been able to continue broadcasting. Um, I, I know that a lot of people, because of their age, could no longer do some of the tasks that they were doing. They were recommended that they stay at home and then we saw you know young people step up and, and take their place in in services such as Meals on Wheels I wonder Andrew whether you get a sense of of generations in in the way that we do community do young people do volunteering and community differently to older people or or really is it um, quite even a, a, across the the generations 
there is a, a desire for what's called episodic volunteering among young people, uh, being able to do one-off projects rather than having to uh, commit to a regular schedule. Uh, I, I share your view that as a, as a volunteer for an organisation like Triple R, you do need to make a, a long-term investment in your skills. You have to commit to being there when you're uh, when you're going to be on the air, uh, and I think that's that's really valuable for the community. Uh, but as a taster of volunteering, ep- episodic volunteering can be really useful. Uh, something like EV Crew, which is uh, emergency volunteering uh, in uh, in Queensland, uh, has been critical during uh, d- natural disasters. Uh, something like a flood uh, allows people to be tapped to, for example, quickly move to a neighbouring suburb and help to put out sandbags in order to uh, to protect a house. Uh, those that sort of volunteering uh, can bring people into the world of volunteering and, and hopefully encourage them to do do more. Uh, but you know, it wouldn't be uh, we, we, we wouldn't be right to to not finish on the the note of uh, the importance of community radio, which not only is a form of volunteering in itself, but also provides that information network and the social glue, uh, allowing people to know what's on, and doing that most important thing in volunteering, asking people to help. Uh, that's the number one reason why people say they volunteer, because someone asked me to help. Yeah. Uh, and the more appeals that you that you put put out through uh, through community radio and through other community channels, uh, the more connected a nation will be. Well, that's a tip to leave on. Thank you so much for um, having a chat with us, Andrew. Real pleasure. Thanks for the chance to talk. No worries. Um, Federal MP Andrew Lee, co-author of a book called Reconnected, a Community Builders Handbook. And it's actually really full of beautiful stories that they've gathered, um, Andrew, together with his co-author, Nick Terrell. And uh, you can get that in all good bookstores when they open and uh, definitely online. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.